This morning we're going to be in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And although we finished the book of Philippians last week, one of the things that um, kept occurring to me was how remarkable the Apostle Paul's love for the Lord Jesus Christ is. How remarkable the Apostle Paul's love for the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now, Paul doesn't specifically, spe- specifically say in the book of Philippians, I love Christ. But nearly every paragraph, every chapter is saturated with that love. And I looked, and here's just some of the phrases that pop out that demonstrate some of that love. Paul refers to himself as a bondservant, as a slave of, of Christ. He's awaiting the day of Christ. He's imprisoned for the cause of Christ. He's rejoicing in the proclamation of Christ. He's hoping in the exaltation of Christ. He's living for Christ, for me to live as Christ, but he says also to die his gain. He's longing to be home with Christ. He's suffering for the sake of Christ. He's having the mind of Christ. He's rejoicing in Christ. He's glorying in Christ. He's clinging to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He's being strengthened by Christ. Paul's love for Christ overflows the book of Philippians. Jesus Christ is at the center of Paul's heart. And often I've wondered, reading through Philippians, well, really, I'm going to be honest, the question that I come up with the most is, why am I not more like Paul? I'm saved by the same God. I have the same spirit within me. I love Jesus Christ, but why isn't my love more like that? So it leads us to ask is, what is the source of Paul's love for Christ? All of this intense effort and his devotion and his loyalty, his radical, exclusive Christ-centeredness, What is the source of that love? How can I love Christ as much as Paul did? In Luke 7, verses 36 to 50, Jesus is going to answer the question for us. Now, not specifically, how was it that Paul loved Christ so much? But he does answer, what makes someone a great lover of himself? What makes someone a great lover of Jesus Christ? So go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you're not already there, Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. I'll be reading from the New American Standard this morning. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that's Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him, again Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with a perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. That's the name of the Pharisee. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. 
So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we are blessed to worship you this morning. I thank you uh, for the communion of the saints that we get to gather together to exalt you, to praise you, to worship you, to sing of the peace that we have with you through your Son. We thank you, Lord, for the good news that you are a forgiving God. And Father, we pray as we contemplate forgiveness this morning, as we contemplate a love for your Son, we do want to glorify him in our hearts. We want to love him with the kind of love that he deserves. And so, Lord, we pray for open hearts. We pray that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts, that we would be humbled and taught, encouraged, rebuked, exposed, admonished, edified, so that we would have a greater love for your son, Jesus Christ. Please use your word in our hearts, Lord, and protect me from explaining it in a way that's not appropriate. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning from Luke 7, verses 36 to 50, we're going to highlight three truths regarding those who have great love for Christ so that we'll grow in loving Christ as he deserves. We're going to highlight three truths regarding those who have great love for Christ so that we will grow in loving Christ as he deserves. And I've got all those, uh, the, the, those three truths written down in your notes for you. I'm going to read them here. And I'm going to read them for you at once, uh, because when you go through a narrative, sometimes when you choose to, to interject a truth, it can be a little, little arbitrary, because this whole story, these truths are developed through it. So there's three truths here. The first is that great love for Jesus must be preceded by an awareness of your sinfulness. The second one is that great love for Jesus must be accompanied by an appreciation of your forgiveness. And the third is that great love for Jesus will be demonstrated through your affection and actions. And I will go through those again as we hit them. So let's look at that first truth. Great love for Jesus must be preceded by an awareness of your sinfulness. Great love for Jesus must be preceded by an awareness of your sinfulness. Let's look at verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. We don't know, uh, and the Pharisee here, we see in verse 40, his name Simon. We don't know Simon's motive for inviting Jesus to eat with him. The language suggests that Simon has an agreeable tone. But that doesn't mean he wasn't trying to entrap Jesus. Maybe he was truly curious. Maybe he was trying to set him up. 
We, do, we don't really know. He's at least cordial. And though cordial with Jesus, he didn't treat Jesus with the courtesy you would for an honored guest. And we'll see more of that. Not maybe as someone who you're used to having come over often. And you know the people who come into your house and maybe, you know, and as a teenager you had friends who would come over. Maybe if you have teens, friends who come over. You, don't, you, you say hi. And that's kind of how he treated Jesus more. It wasn't with, with a lot of courtesy. Just, just well, welcome. Now it says here, and it's very different from us, uh, that when Jesus sat to eat, he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So obviously this is a shorter table. Reclining was the, nabal, was the normal position for eating a special meal in the ancient Near East. It wasn't true of every meal, but for a special meal. And sometimes it took side, maybe hand propped up on his elbow, head propped on his elbow, facing the table, with body and feet angling away from the table. If I ever eat popcorn while watching a movie, that is totally what they do, right? They just kind of sit there eating. And that is what they would do at one of these special meals. And at these special meals, the door was left open, whether into the house or maybe the courtyard, so that uninvited guests from the city could come in and sit along the perimeter of the walls, hear the conversation that was being had with a special guest, this visiting rabbi. And we see here that even a woman who was known to be sinful was still allowed to enter and observe. There's no indication that anyone's saying, whoa, you can't come in here. So it's a very different kind of meal than we're used to. Let's look at verse 37. And there when he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of, of perfume. Now we don't know how this woman received her reputation as a sinner. It was likely because of her immoral lifestyle. Perhaps she was an adulteress. Many think that she was a prostitute. The sinful woman already knew of Jesus. When she heard that Jesus was reclining there, she comes with her alabaster jar of perfume. We don't know what she had already known about Jesus. Had she seen his miracles firsthand? Had she known someone who had been healed by Jesus? Maybe seen how compassionate Jesus was in extending grace to sinners. Perhaps she had heard how Jesus had forgiven others, like the, par like the paralytic who had been lowered through the ceiling, coming to be healed, and instead Jesus says, your sins are, are forgiven. Perhaps she had heard about how Jesus had called other sinners, like Levi, the tax collector to come and follow him. As we'll see, this sinful woman knew enough of Jesus' message and enough of, of who Jesus was to believe in him. She, she had already heard a lot of Jesus. Maybe she had had previous conversations with him. What we see is that when she comes in, she is confident that she will not be rejected by him. She came ready to express sacrificial devotion. And she does that by bringing in this alabaster flask. It would be small, perhaps worn around the neck. Thousands of these have been found in, 
in the, the, the Middle East in, in archaeological digs. It would have expensive perfume inside. A, another woman, Mary in John 12, comes to do a similar thing to Jesus. And Judas, who is obviously in this for different motives, hypothesizes that that alabaster jar that another woman, Mary, brought could have been sold for 300 de denarii, excuse me, which would have been basically a year's wages. So just do your own math. That's some very expensive perfume there. Coming here would have required courage for this known sinner. It's easy to imagine as she comes in, people are avoiding eye contact with her. Maybe some are scuttling away as she sits down. Like they don't want to get too close to this woman who they would have considered as unclean because of what she'd been doing. Verse 38 says, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping. The word for weeping is used to describe rain showers. That's what kind of weeping was going on there. Why did she weep? Were these tears of contrition over a lifetime of sin? Tears of relief at no longer hiding in shame from God and others. Tears of joy over undeserved forgiveness of unimagined grace. Tears of awe at the privilege of serving the long-awaited Messiah, even by anointing his feet. Perhaps many of those emotions were going on at the same time. The sinful woman was not kicked aside by the Savior of the world. And that is good news for you. When you come to Jesus Christ in your sinfulness, you will not be kicked away. You will not be rejected if you come in this kind of humility and brokenness. Now, clearly this woman had not planned on weeping, on, on, on raining over Jesus' feet. Her tears are, are, are etching rivers into his dusty feet, creating mud. Dusty, unwashed, dry feet from, from, from a day's worth of walking in that dry Middle Eastern climate and sandaled feet. So she didn't plan. So now there's this, this mess here. So what does she do? It says, verse 38, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head. She didn't bring a towel. She didn't bring anything else to wipe his feet with. She hadn't planned on washing his feet. At least as far as we see here. So she lets down her hair. And this is completely lost on us in our culture. There, it was shameful for a woman to let down her hair in public. And, and I want to be discreet here, but it is culturally nearly as shocking as a woman taking off her shirt is here. It would be only done in private. But she has to dry his feet. This verb for kissing, it says, kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. 
the word there for kissing. It's a more intense uh, form of the common used verb. It's used to describe the kiss of the father when the prodigal son returns. Just, just that, 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 it, that kiss that accompanies the warm embrace, just lavishing love on. It's the kiss of the elders uh, upon Paul as he leaves from Ephesus for the last time. The sinful woman is kissing the feet of the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. It was a kiss honoring him. And you can imagine some kind of king coming in and you throw yourself at his feet. And what would kissing his feet show? I mean, we see that kind of thing in stories and movies, right? And there really could be a range of emotions here, of honor, of submission, of desperateness, pleading, affection, worship. These verbs here, uh, wiping and kissing and anointing, are in the imperfect tense. She was wiping, she was kissing, she was anointing. Each was an ongoing, not just something that happened quickly. This was a scene here. We can only imagine the impression that it made at the meal. I imagine most were torn between staring and looking away. It was so intriguing, but it would have been so disturbing. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. I love what, uh, what John MacArthur brings out here. Simon says absolutely nothing to impugn Jesus' character. For any other man, any other man, There'd be some kind of joke here, some kind of accusation of indecency, some kind of of implied, like, what's going on here? Do, Do we have the whole picture? Do they already know each other? Like, this isn't proper. Not a hint of that. It shows that even Simon the Pharisee assumes that Jesus was blameless in this. He has no accusation against Jesus, except he must not be a prophet. Because if Jesus were a prophet, he would never let this unclean woman touch his feet. So he must not know. It's proven. Maybe Simon had hoped to bring, the, uh, bring Jesus there to find out if he really did speak for God. And for him, case closed. He doesn't know what this woman really is. That's the only reason to explain why Jesus would let her near him. Touching him is in the present tense in verse 39 when it says, this woman who is touching him, it pictures ongoing contact. The offense is ongoing as well. The Pharisees disgusted with what the sinner is doing. We're going to focus here on that first truth now. Great love for Jesus must be preceded by awareness of your sinfulness. See, the only sinner the Pharisee is aware of is the one who's worshiping Jesus Christ. That's the only sinner here that the Pharisee is aware of. The Pharisee was immune to the holiness of Jesus. 
Jesus, it had no effect upon him. The presence of the sinless Son of God had revealed nothing to the Pharisee of his own need for a Savior. The Pharisee Simon failed to respond to the Son of Man like the fisherman Simon, another Simon, had in Luke 5, 8. When that Simon, Simon Peter, saw Jesus' holiness, Luke 5, 8, he too falls at the feet of Jesus and he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But this Simon, the Pharisee, the learned one, doesn't get Jesus. He doesn't see, the Pharisee doesn't see his own sin. Now, this was really being different from sinners, from those who were known for their impurity. In Luke 18, 11 through 12, Jesus uh, stereotypes the uh, Pharisees in a parable. He says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. He could totally see Simon like that. So glad I'm not like that woman. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and, 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 and there in Luke 18, or even like this, this tax collector. And then the Pharisee talks about the things he does. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. See, the Pharisee's identity was being different from others. We see something similar in Luke 5, verses 30 to 32. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to the Pharisees, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. The tax collectors and the sinners, they get it. They're aware of their sinfulness. They realize that they've broken God's law. They realize that they are morally bankrupt, that they are not healthy but sick. Then Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Simon, like the other Pharisees, thought that he was righteous, that he was okay. Jesus said, I didn't come for you. I come for those who know that they're broken. Now, the Pharisee theologically knew that he had some sin, but he didn't grasp the offense of his sin. When he compared himself to this sinful woman, he didn't think his sin mattered. Simon would have been indignant to be included in what Paul says in Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, specifically talking about those who consider themselves moral. What then? Are we better than they? And Simon's like, yes, of course. That's the whole point of this. I am better. No, no, no. Then Paul goes on. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. It is written, then Paul brings out the Old Testament, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift as shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I can imagine Simon there with his arms crossing. Not me. That doesn't describe me. I keep God's law. And that's just as Saul would have done, too, before coming to Christ. Saul the Apostle, Paul. In his self-righteousness, that Pharisee would have been, 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 been just hating hearing that. Maybe some of you here this morning are like, that's not describing me. 
I'm basically moral. I'm okay. I'm not as bad as a whole bunch of other people I know. I watch the news. I'm not like them. In his self-righteousness, Simon would be writhing hearing these kinds of charges against him. But the sinful woman, she was aware of her sinfulness. She would say, yes, that's me. That's who I am. That describes me. Yes, my feet might have not been as swift to shed blood, but that's in my heart. The poison of asps is in my lips. I am capable of so much wickedness. I've done so many wicked things. I'm here because I need a savior. That's why I'm here. It's far better to be a convicted adulterer than a deluded Pharisee. It's far better to be a guilty prostitute than a self-deceived pastor. The sinful woman had more in common with Isaiah the prophet than the Pharisee who had probably memorized all of Isaiah the prophet. When that sinful woman is before the Lord of glory, she has the same response that Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when he comes into the throne room of God. And he says, Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined. And that is what this woman was. She was ruined. She was undone. And that is true for all of us who come to Jesus Christ. We are ruined. We are undone. And if you know Jesus Christ, this message is not bad news for you right now. You're like, yes, that is who I am apart from Christ. We are like the tax collector in Luke 18, 13, who's standing some distance away. One of these sinners was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And this sinful woman had already gone through that in her heart. She had thrown herself, aware of her sin, onto the mercy of Jesus Christ. How do you see yourself as apart from Jesus Christ? Now, for some of you, this is who you were before you put your hope in him. For some of you, it is who you are now because you have not yet put your hope in him. Do you see yourself as a little dirty or as hopelessly stained apart from Christ? As smudged or as filthy? As healthy or as hellish? As righteous or as wretched? Do you have a worldly, minimizing perspective of sin as little mistakes? Or do you have God's view of your sin as treason and rebellion? We will never have great love for Jesus Christ, but we are still trying to cling, cling to an excuse of being little sinners. Great love for Jesus must be preceded by an awareness of your sinfulness. Great love for Jesus must be accompanied as well by an appreciation of your forgiveness. And that's the second truth. Great love for Jesus must be accompanied by an appreciation of your forgiveness. In verse 40, Jesus answered Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. You know, Jesus would have had compassion on the woman here who had to listen to Simon say that. But there's also compassion on Simon here. 
He doesn't say, you fool. He teaches him. Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replied, say it, teacher. <laughs> and uh, he maybe he has some idea of what's coming. Jesus is about to prove a denarii was the amount a day laborer would earn in a day. So times eight hours for a real simple. It's what could be earned here in, an, in 80 weeks of work versus what could be earned in when these two who owed money, it says in verse 42, were unable to repay. He graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Now, this is obviously shockingly out of character for a moneylender. Banks don't do this, whether for small loans like cars or big loans like houses. No, no one does this, right? It's not what either debtor deserved. Neither of these debtors were able to repay, it says. And neither debtor deserved to have their debt forgiven. But the question is, which would love the moneylender more? Verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. This uh, suppose here is a grudging admission. Now, perhaps Simon had been hearing Jesus teach in the past. Maybe he feared what was next. So he says, I suppose, instead of just kind of gives just a simple answer. Maybe he sees what's coming. He sees that he's been given enough rope to hang himself. Simon hadn't judged Jesus, right? He hadn't judged himself right. He hadn't judged the sinful woman right. He thought that Jesus wasn't a prophet, thought that this woman was beyond hope, and didn't see any sin in himself. But Jesus says to him at the end of, of verse 30, 43, you have judged co correctly. In this, you've got the right answer, Simon. Now, Jesus' point with the story is not that only those who commit some kind of particularly heinous sin are going to love him more. Jesus is not advocating, you know, before getting saved, you should really do some really bad things, some really shameful things, so that you have a great love for Christ. You need a thrilling testimony if you're going to love him more. I've put thrilling testimony in quotation marks. Because there's a thrilling testimony from everyone that God moves from darkness to light, from death to life. You don't have to persecute Christians to love Paul. I mean, to love, yeah, to love Paul would be weird. To love like Paul loved Christ. See, what matters here isn't the kinds of sin that you've committed, but how you perceive the sins that you've committed. Do you realize that God would be just to leave you outside of his grace? That he would be right to exact an eternal punishment for the sins that you've committed right now this day? Romans 2.2, Paul says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. The judgment of God is right. It would be right for eternal hell to be poured out upon us. It's right. When we perceive the debt that we owe, when we perceive our bankruptcy, 
bankruptcy, when we perceive our inability to pay, when we get it, and when we then hear our debt was paid in full, the result is great love. It comes from an appreciation of our forgiveness. Our love is greatest when we most fully appreciate the miracle of being forgiven. But if you presume that you didn't really owe that much, that you're only a 50 denarii sinner, not a 500 one. If you're thinking, at least I'm not like that kind of sinner. I'm not like the blurb I just read on Yahoo. That's not me. Then you will also fail to appreciate the forgiveness that you have in Jesus Christ. It'll be a cheaply gained commodity for you. It'll be a trinket in a Happy Meal that, that, that thrills you for a little bit, right? Or your kids. And then after like two hours, like it's in your van for ages. If you don't appreciate forgiveness, you wouldn't begin to think about sacrificing your costly ointment and pouring it over Jesus' feet. Do you appreciate this forgiveness that can be yours in Christ? Acts 13.38 says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that is the good news that you come here for this morning. That forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that salvation may have taken place long in the past for you. Or maybe it's for you this morning who's not yet right with God. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through faith in Jesus Christ. A debt cannot be forgiven without someone paying for it. See, the debt of your sins is too great for you to pay. It doesn't matter if someone else owes more. Without rescue, without that payment being paid, an eternity of hell will not pay it. It will never be paid. That debt has to be paid, and that is why Christ came to pay the debt of sinners. And we never get past this. This is our hope. This is why we're not afraid to talk about sin. This is why we're not afraid to confess our sins to one another. This is why we're not afraid to work hard at righteousness and to see ourselves fail again and again and again. Because of what 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, to pay our penalty. So there is now no more shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. You, you, you can tell your brothers and sisters in Christ what you're struggling with. You don't have to give up trying to obey because you might fail. Some of you might be tempted. You've seen failure in the past. You're afraid of failure. You're ashamed of failure. So you stop working at obedience. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Now, until you humbly receive this response to his gracious love to us, 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To be the satisfier of wrath for our sins. To be the, the wrath quencher of our sins. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And then First John 4.19, a few verses later, we love because he first loved us. This is the source of great love for Christ. 
It is his love for us. If you have been forgiven, do you appreciate the forgiveness of your debt? If you've been forgiven, I know at one time it was so sweet to you, but we get used to it. We start forgetting about it. Those who have great love for Jesus, that love has to be accompanied by an appreciation of forgiveness, by an awareness of your sinfulness. Then our third truth is not really how that happens, but that it will be demonstrated. Great love for Jesus will be demonstrated to next. That great love for Jesus is going to be visible. It's going to be seen. It's going to be demonstrated through your affections and actions. Verse 44. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? And that's so sweet. This, this is really a turn of events that Simon would have never expected. Jesus refers to her as the woman and not the sinner. But now, the woman is the one that the Pharisee needs to learn from. Then Jesus contrasts Simon and the woman's behavior and shows that the evidence of love is demonstrated by those whom God has forgiven. He says, in verse 44, second half, I, 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 I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now, it's debated among commentators whether custom would have required Simon to have Jesus' feet washed. Like, like would, he, would he have had to? Would, would he automatically slighting him by not doing it? And, 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 and the commentators are divided. But it would, at least would have been an act of courtesy to give him water so he could wash his own feet. At least. More so, it would have been to have one of Simon's servants wash his feet. But certainly, Simon would have never thought about washing Jesus' feet himself. Verse 45, Jesus continues, You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Simon had failed to greet Jesus even as a friend with a friendly kiss, which was common in that culture. But the woman demonstrated her humility in kissing his feet, her hope in Christ by kissing his feet, her devotion, her joy and appreciation at being forgiven by kissing his dirty, dry, calloused feet. I mean, I've seen some of you who wear sandals. Those feet are not pretty. I wouldn't want to kiss those feet. And this is in just normal weather. You know, we spend lots of time inside. We have restrooms. Verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Again, oil for someone's head wasn't required. But it would have been a special courtesy, like would have been appropriate when you invite a visiting rabbi to your house in the center of a feast. But the woman did so much more, anointing his feet with expensive perfume. In verse 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which, which are many, we all know that, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The woman's great love and we can't be too clear about this, was not the grounds of her forgiveness, but the evidence of her forgiveness. 
For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. And some would say, see, she was forgiven for she loved much. There's the reason here. That's why she was forgiven, because she loved much. One commentator explains, explains this. He says, with a statement, it's raining because the windows are wet. It's raining. I know it's raining because the windows are wet. Makes a ton of sense, right? Not that it happens here. And in that parallel, this woman's sins are forgiven because she loves much. It doesn't mean that the water on the windows is the cause of the rain. Rather, the water on the windows is evidence of the presence of rain, this commentator says. That's a, sequence of the, uh, that's a sense of the sequence of actions in this verse. Love evidences an awareness of, a reception of, and a response to previous forgiveness, end quote. The woman's demonstration of love testifies to her forgiveness. Her actions are not in payment, but in appreciation. They're not in payment, but in appreciation. Jesus' use of the word forgiven here, in verse 47, it says, have been forgiven. That's in the past perfect. She had already been forgiven. And I don't know if that happened right there, then. I would think that it happened previously, either from a previous conversation with Christ, because of the gospel that he had heard her, that she had heard him preach, because of the testimony of another. But it's past perfect. It is already done. She had already been forgiven. Her heart was right before her creator. She had been forgiven, so she loved much. Her sins had been scarlet, but now they were white as snow. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. There was an infinite distance between her sin and now who she is in Christ. Between the forgiveness that she has. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jesus would not remember her sins. They had been wiped out. Now, this is looking forward to what he's going to accomplish on the cross. But as all the forgiven sins that had been beforehand had as well, it's because of what Christ would do. Now, when Jesus contrasts here at the end of verse 47, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Little love is evidence of little forgiveness. Little love is evidence of little forgiveness. Now, Jesus' point, of course, we know, is not that the Pharisee had only a few sins to be forgiven of. There's no such thing as little sinners, only people who think of themselves that way. And if you're comfortable with the thought of being forgiven little sins or, or being forgiven little or loving little, you're not right with the Lord. You're not right with the Lord if you're, if you, if you're comfortable with this. I mean, if you're like, oh, look, it says someone who is forgiven little loves little. Well, that explains. I've just, I just been forgiven little sin, so I don't love as much as some people. If you love little, either you have never been forgiven, and that's possible. Your little love may be because you've never been forgiven, or maybe, maybe you've forgotten how much you've been forgiven. Maybe you've forgotten how great 
the debt you owed Christ. A lack of love is a symptom of a lack of forgiveness. It's a a symptom of a lack of forgiveness. I'm not going to say it's proof. Because our hearts can can begin to wander. They're, 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 They're prone to wander. We find ourselves in times where our hearts are getting cold and we don't love Christ as we once did. It doesn't mean that we are no longer justified, that we're no longer in a state of being forgiven. But I do think we should, we should pause and we should wonder. And if our, if our love is cold, if, if we realize and see in ourselves that we have, a, we have, we have some, some affection for Christ, but it's, it's, it's a little love may, that may be a symptom that you have not been forgiven. At the very least, it's a symptom that you forgot what you've been forgiven of. So again, I'm not saying it's proof, but it's a symptom. Some of you have grown up in Christian homes. If you look and you say, I've never loved Christ like this. The problem isn't that you're not a great sinner. The problem is that you don't realize how great your sin is. The problem may be that you have never turned for forgiveness of your sins. Jesus pointed to Simon's actions as evidence of his lack of love. And pointed to the women's, woman's actions as evidence of her great love. The extent of their love was demonstrated in their actions. And these are affectionate actions. These are, are, are serving and kissing. If you have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, if you've been reconciled to him, if he is your Lord you will display your great love for him. Right? That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I know of her love because I see it. Look at the contrast. Her love is great. The woman's love was costly and sacrificial. The woman's love was loyal already to Christ. She ignored the shame of her devotion to him. The woman's love was intense. It was full of emotion for her Savior. The woman's love was genuine and pure and undivided. It wasn't for an audience. She didn't come to put on a show. This wasn't what the Pharisees were doing. The woman's love was internally compelled and not externally forced. This, this wasn't box-checking love. And there may be a place for that. But that wasn't what was motivating here. It wasn't just to, 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 to show, well, I showed a lot of love for Christ. It was costly, loyal, intense, pure, and internally compelled. How do you display your love for Jesus Christ? How are you displaying your love for Jesus Christ? This might be very encouraging to you, or it might be a troublesome question. Does your bank account, does your calendar confess your great love for Christ? Does your daily schedule, could your neighbors, could your coworkers speak to your great love for Christ? Really, at this point, everyone in the town knew her great love 
for Christ? Do your children or those that you live with see your love for him through your devotion to his word, through your faithfulness to his body? Out of love for him, do you run from sins which bring shame to Christ? Do you work hard to cultivate the obedience that Christ loves? Are you invested in the advance of God's kingdom by seeing new disciples made and seeing disciples grow? Do your affections and actions speak to your great love and great forgiveness? Again, that may be an incredibly encouraging question to you. You may look at that and say, by God's grace, I see all kinds of evidence of great love. Those questions may be very burdensome for you. And they say, I don't see any evidence of great love. I may not be forgiven. Or they may be somewhere in the middle. Some of those are painful for me to read. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. How are you in your lives washing and drying and kissing and anointing the feet of Christ? Or are you like Simon, indifferent to the Savior's presence? In verse 48, Jesus says to the woman, directly to her now, your sins have been forgiven. Again, the tense of the verb here is past perfect. He confirms it to her. Her forgiveness is complete. She may have been the sinful woman, but now she's the forgiven woman. Her identity is forever different. She is, although to some extent the full blessing occurs at Pentecost, but she is in Christ. She is forgiven. In doing so, in proclaiming this, in saying to her, your sins have forgiven, Jesus throws down a gauntlet with the Pharisees. The stakes have just risen in this conflict. The proven prophet, the one who knows the Pharisee's mind, who knows this woman's sin, he is prophet, pronounces forgiveness too. So either Jesus has been commissioned by God to this task of proclaiming forgiveness, or else, one commentator says, he's extremely deluded, presumptuous, and even blasphemous. And in this, there is hope for you. This is why Jesus Christ came. Those who were reclining the table, verse 49 says, with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? This is why Jesus Christ came. When Jesus had opportunity in Luke 4 to be before the synagogue, he he opens the scroll in Luke 4, verses 17 to 19. It says, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. Intentionally goes to Isaiah 4, verses 7, I mean, and Isaiah 4, verses 17 and 19. Luke 4, 17 and 19 goes to the book in Isaiah, opens it up where it says this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are, who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. When Jesus opened that scroll, he says, forgiveness is here. And isn't that good news for us? And isn't that the source of our great love? We have been forgiven in Christ. We, I mean, the shame is gone. It is past. 
There is nothing that we can do to take ourselves out of forgiveness with him. Acts 5.31 He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That is why Christ is exalted right now, so that you can be forgiven. So that you would then have great love for Jesus Christ. That's who this man is who even forgives sins. Luke 7, verse 50. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So important. The woman was not saved because of her love for Christ. The woman was not saved because of her affections. The woman was not saved because of her actions. Love was a demonstration of having been forgiven. She was saved Your faith has saved you by her faith in God's promises centered on God's Son. And that is the way that we are saved still. And if that is how you were saved when you first came to know Christ and to know the sweetness of forgiveness, that is the way we continue. It is not that list of what we have and haven't done. It is in Christ alone that our faith is placed. So if you need forgiveness, it is in Christ Acts 10.43, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, but you'll be changed. You'll receive forgiveness of sins, but you will forever be turned into a great lover of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what you want to be for eternity if you've been forgiven by him. It it really makes this whole question of, you know, does, does Jesus need to be our Lord to be our Savior so strange? He forgave me. I love him with all my heart. Of course he's my Lord. Like, do you think that that someone could have stopped that woman who'd been forgiven from weeping? From drying? From even shamefully taking, laying down her hair because she had nothing else and drying his feet? From breaking that, that perfume open? knowing that she had been a great sinner and receiving this great forgiveness had made her a great lover of Jesus Christ, and that's what it will do to you. So if you're, if you're not a great lover of Jesus Christ, maybe it's because you've never been forgiven, or maybe it's because you've forgot what you've been forgiven of. Would you have this kind of love that the Apostle Paul did? For me to live is Christ. Oh, all those things that we read at the beginning. To to happily identify as a slave of Christ. Awaiting the day of Christ. Imprisoned for the cause of Christ. Rejoicing in the proclamation of Christ. Hoping, confident, waiting for the exaltation of Christ. Living for Christ. Longing to be home with Christ. Suffering for the sake of Christ. Having the mind of Christ. Rejoicing in Christ. Glorying in Christ. Clinging to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Strengthened by Christ. Then love Christ. And you will love him. You will have great love for Jesus. If you have an awareness of your sins, of your sinfulness as it is, if you appreciate your forgiveness that has been granted to you, then you're going to demonstrate that through your affections and actions. So grow in love for Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, Her sins, which are many, 
have been forgiven, for she loved much. It's obvious. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Let's pray. Father, our uh, hearts uh, sing out with the hymn writer, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. We want to love your son more. Lord, we know it's going to look different. It's not about playing up some kind of emotional show. Lord, we're all different people, different kinds of gifts, different kinds of responsibilities. But Father, this is about the glory of your Son. This is about him being exalted. And we know that when he is lifted up, all that glory is to you. Father, we pray that you would make us people who would love your Son more. And we know that that requires a certain pain. A certain pain as we look into your law. I think many of us feel that pain every day when we choose whether we're going to open your word or not. And how many of us turn away not wanting to feel convicted. Or some stay away from church because they don't want to feel convicted. Father, we don't like hard questions being asked. We feel, in a sense, the, the laws condemning. Lord, we want to have that awareness of sin so that we would appreciate, not so that's an end in itself, not for some kind of penance, not so that we could just heap judgment upon ourselves. We know there's no condemnation in Christ, Lord, but so that we would appreciate the forgiveness that we've been given, so that we would wonder and be in awe of the extent of the atonement, of, of, of full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We want our love for you to overflow. We want to love Christ deeply. I trust, Lord, that that is the cry of my brothers and sisters here, Lord. We want to love you more. So please, Lord, let us see the weight of our sin and let us be refreshed again by the fount of your son's blood. How incredible to think that those feet were pierced that this woman anointed. Lord, um, he did not deserve our sin upon him. But you, you, you were pleased to crush him for our iniquities. God, let us have full love that's evidenced in true affections, in, in, in conversations, in, in, in not being able to stop talking about the Savior, of, of not being able to be held back. From, from, from weeping and, 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 and washing and anointing his feet with oil. Lord, let us be forever changed by the gospel. Let us keep being changed by the gospel. Lord, I do pray for those who have not yet known the sweetness of forgiveness. Lord, there are, are those here, likely, Lord, who have not yet loved you, who still have little love because they've only been forgiven a little in their minds. Oh, please, Lord, break through that. Uh, let the law thunder so that they would uh, come to the um, green pastures of knowing uh, your son. Thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.